Well, good morning. Happy New Year. For those of you who don't know me, my name is David. I'm an elder candidate here at Mission, and I have the opportunity this morning to present God's Word to you. And being that this is New Year's Day, I feel compelled to ask you all about New Year's Day resolutions. So, raise of hands, how many of you made New Year's Day resolutions? Don't worry, I won't ask you whether or not you've kept them or not. A couple. How many of you are categorically opposed to making resolutions? A little bit more. How many of you just don't think about it and just treat this as any other day? All right, a couple more of you there. <laughs> so whether or not you do resolutions, I feel like it's important to be intentional with how we spend our time and our energy. And I, I picked one of my favorite passages this morning, uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And the reason I picked this passage is because it's one of those passages that clearly and succinctly summarizes it, summarizes what we are to, to do. You know, it, it encourages us to be intentional with our time, with our energy, gives us a direction in how we are to, to proceed, which direction we are to face. And it also gives us great encouragement in pursuing that path. So uh, I'm going to pray or I'm going to begin by reading the passage, and then we'll pray, and then I'll get into it. So Hebrews 12, 1-2 says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for a new day, a new year, in which we can uh, wake up and um, just renew our commitment to, to follow you. Uh, we thank you for your word that gives us guidance on who you are and how you've, you've called us to live. I just pray that you be with, um, with us this morning. May we May you open our eyes to what your word has to say for us, and may we, we apply it and um, just move forward um, more in love with you and more excited to be on mission with, with what you've called us to do. And so just pray for um, my words this morning. May they um, reflect your words. So we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so our passage this morning starts with the word, therefore, which means that we have to look back to see what the writer has been talking about. There's, there's some connection between what the writer of Hebrews has said previously and what he's about to say in our passage. And the immediate context for us, for our passage, is chapter 11, which makes sense because it comes right before chapter 12. But I want to I take us back to the beginning of Hebrews and, and kind of step us through the pattern that the, the author of Hebrews is making because he sets up this this recurring pattern, and he's building up this idea throughout the book. And it's important to, to know what that pattern is in order to, to understand what it is that he's emphasizing here in our passage. So the main purpose of the book of Hebrews as a whole is to talk about how amazing Jesus is and to encourage us to hold on fast to Jesus and Jesus alone. And so he does this by, he brings up different examples in which the audience who, based on the context, the audiences are Jewish Christians. So he brings up 
examples of things and people that the, the audience would agree are all pretty amazing. These are things that are kind of foundational to, to the Jewish people, um, things like the law, Moses. You know, these things are kind of foundational to who they are. And then he step-by-step step talks about just how amazing Jesus is and why Jesus is so much more amazing than these things. So he starts out in chapters 1 and 2 by talking about angels who are amazing because they are messengers of God. They're, they're bringing the very word of God to people here on earth. But then Jesus comes along and he's more amazing than angels for, for two main reasons. The first is that he's not just a, a third-party intermediate uh, interceder between God and us. Jesus is in and, of him, in and of himself God. So he is the messenger as well as the one delivering the message. He's the one, the originator of the message. And so there's a, there's a sense in which God's revelation is coming through just in the person of Jesus, just in his very nature. He's revealing God to us. You know, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So that's why he's called the Word of God. He is the revelation. So we get a firsthand account of, of who God is in observing who Jesus is. And the second way that Jesus is better than the angels is because the message itself is about Jesus. So the message, the gospel message, is about how Jesus temporarily becomes lower than the angels by coming to earth and suffering, but then through his death and resurrection, he's crowned with glory and honor, and he's raised up above all things. So then the author of Hebrews, he goes on, and he, then he talks about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And Moses is kind of this foundational figure for the Jewish people. And Moses is a faithful servant. He does the work of God. But Moses, he's just doing what God tells him to do. The author describes the, this building of a household of God. And Moses is a part of that household. But Jesus, he's the architect. He's the builder of that house, of which Moses is a part. And so Jesus is the one. He's in charge. He's calling the shots, which makes him better than Moses. And then the author goes on to compare Jesus with the Levitical priests. If you remember, the role of the Levitical priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, to atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus takes on this role by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for us, by dying and taking that, the penalty of sin on our behalf. But Jesus is better than the Levitical priest for a number of reasons. The first is that Jesus is perfect. So the Levitical priests, in order to, to do their job, they first had to purify, they first had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they were able to go and offer sacrifices for the people. But Jesus is perfect. He, he doesn't need to purify himself before interceding on behalf of others. Secondly, the Levitical, Levitical priests die. You know, they're, they're normal human beings. That's a natural part of, of what it means to be a, a human on this earth. But Jesus comes along and he's the perfect priest because he is an eternal priest. He's a priest forever. He takes on this role and he is there forever. And then the third reason that Jesus is more than just, better than Levitical priests is that he's more than just a priest. More than just a priest. So in the Old Testament, there were, there were different roles. There was the role of uh, priests. There was the role of prophets. There was kings. And Jesus comes along and these Levitical priests, they had, they had one job. So they, they did the work in the temple, 
They offer the sacrifices. But Jesus comes along and he does more than that. He takes on the role of a priest king. And that's what the author of Hebrews talks about when he talks about a priest on the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is, is an example from Genesis of someone who is, takes on the role of both priest and king. So Jesus is a priest, but he is also much, much more than just a priest. And then the author goes on to explain that the whole sacrificial system in general, of which the Levitical priests are a part of, is inferior to the new covenant that Jesus brings. Jesus provides a once-for-all atonement for sins, so we don't have to keep coming, we don't have to keep sacrificing to, to pay for those sins. Jesus does, came, did it once, and paid for our sins. And the whole sacrificial system in, in general is meant to be a foreshadow of what Christ came to do. And then, then we get to chapter 11, which is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. And in the chapter, the author goes through and names a bunch of people who are examples of, of people who were faithful to what God called them to do. People such as Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, and many others who are examples of people who are faithful, people who persevered in their faith. And that brings us to, to our passage this morning, which I'm going to reread because it's, it's pretty short. And it says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses, those people that were talked about in chapter 11, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the author is exhorting us to persevere in our faith like these people did that are mentioned in chapter 11. They are examples for us to follow. But as is the pattern of the book of Hebrews, the, these people that are examples for us to follow, Jesus comes along and he is the better example. He is the perfect example for us to follow. If you look back at the, the list of people in chapter 11, you see a, a group of people who, they made mistakes. You know, they, they sinned. They made errors. A lot of times, they, they, the way that they acted demonstrated a lack of faith. Um, a lot of times, they just didn't live up to the standard. People kind of, they kind of stumbled their way through life. But Jesus comes along, and he's the perfect example. He's the perfect witness of how we live a life of faith. In Hebrews 2, 1 to 12, it uses the imagery of a race to represent living a life of faith. And we're encouraged to, to follow Jesus' example in running that race well. And we're given insight into how to do that. And that brings us to our main idea for this morning, which is running the race of faith well takes clarity of direction, it takes removal of unnecessary hindrances, and it takes endurance. Running the race of faith well takes clarity of direction, it takes removal of unnecessary hindrances, and it takes endurance. So number one, clarity of direction. So if we're, if we're talking about a race, in any race, including the race of faith, it's important to know which way you're headed. You know, you could run as fast as you want, you could give as much effort as you want, but if you're not headed in the right direction, if you're not facing the finish line, you're never going to cross that line. So what direction are we supposed to face in our race of faith? The first part of verse 2 gives us our target. 
It says, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. But what does that mean, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? I can think of four ways in which this plays out. First of all, is that Jesus is the object of our faith. Having faith requires something to have faith in. Christian faith is believing that Christ did what verse 2 says that he did. It says, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus did all the work. We're called not to do anything else, but we're called to have faith in what he did. We're called to believe that Christ died, rose again for our sins, and to submit ourselves to his rightful lordship. So Jesus is the object of our faith, and Jesus is the perfect example. We look to Jesus as an example of how to run the race well. We look to him as an example of how to live a life of obedience to God. And this this goes beyond just being an example of of following a standard. But but Jesus himself is God, and God's character is the standard by which we're called to live. So God didn't set up an arbitrary system of rules in which Jesus then had to navigate his way through while he was on earth. Leviticus 11.44 says, Be holy, for I am holy. He is the standard. He's not just a great example of that standard. Many of you may remember the the slogan from the 90s, what would Jesus do? And that, that might have become kind of cliche, and maybe that kind of triggers some things in your mind. But it, it serves as a, a simple and practical way to understand how we have been commanded to live. But of course, in order to put that into practice, what would Jesus do? We first have to know what it is that Jesus would do. We have to get to know him. We have to get to know his character, how he would respond in certain situations. And he's given us ways in which we can do that, in which we can get to know him better. The first thing is, is we have a written account of, of Jesus in the Bible. And as, as you read through the Bible, the whole Bible points to Jesus. You know, the, the Old Testament is all foreshadowed to, to Christ. We have the gospel accounts of, of how he lived when he was on earth. The rest of the New Testament is, is pointing back to Jesus and just kind of exhorting us to, to live a life uh, in response to what he has done for us. And then, so we have, we have the written account of God's word pointing us to Jesus, and we've been invited to get to know him better through prayer. We have this connection to Jesus. We can, we can pray to him, we can, we can talk to him, and get to know him better and on a deeper level, get to know his character better. So he's, our object, he's the object of our faith. He's our perfect example. He's also our reward. He is the finish line in this race. This is what we are looking forward to doing, or to being. We look forward to a day in which we will be fully reunited with Christ in eternity. Each week we take communion, and part of communion is is looking forward to that day in which we will be united. We will be in union with Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 29, But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now, on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this is what we're looking forward to. This is what, as we persevere in our faith, what we look forward to as, as the end goal is being fully reunited with Christ. And fourthly, we look to Jesus as our source of power. Verse, 20, verse 2 calls Jesus our source, the source and perfecter of our faith. And if you remember through our, our series in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 
says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift. So God is, God is the one who has opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He's the one who's gifted us faith. He's put us at the starting line of, of this race that we're on. He is the source. He is also the perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the days of Christ Jesus. So Christ hasn't just set us up and said, here, go, do it all on your own. But no, he's, he's guiding us along and he is the source of power, enabling us to move closer to him. And I love, I love the account of, of Peter walking on water. If you remember the story, the disciples, they're in a boat. It's stormy, it's at night, and Jesus starts coming to them, walking on the water. And they get kind of freaked out because they, they see something out in, in the storm. They don't know what it is. They think maybe it's a ghost. That's their guess. Maybe it's a ghost. And then Jesus says, don't worry, it's me. Like, it, it's me, don't worry. And then Peter offers this, this weird validation test. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you. And Jesus says, okay, come. And so Peter, he takes a step out. He fixes his eyes on Jesus, and he makes progress towards Jesus. And as long as he's focused on Jesus, he's doing it. He's making his way towards, towards him, walking on the water in the midst of the storm. But the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, the moment he looks at the storm around him, he starts to get afraid, and he starts to sink. And I, I love this as a, as a picture of, of what it means for us to look to Jesus as a source of power, even when there's storms raging around us. If we believe that, that Jesus has been given all authority on heaven and earth, it doesn't matter what trials we face. It doesn't matter the storm that's going around us. He is the, the source and power that we have to keep going, to keep taking that next step, even when it seems impossible. So looking to Jesus means we place our faith in him. We look to him as an example. We look forward to being fully reunited with him someday. And we look to him to give us strength to keep going. So he is the clarity of our direction. He is our focus in this race. Running the race of faith well, it also takes removal of hindrances along the way. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we also have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So let's start with that first phrase, lay aside every hindrance. A hindrance is, is anything that slows us down, anything that we're carrying that, that prevents us from moving forward in our quest to, to draw closer to Jesus. Imagine you're planning a long-distance race. You know, what, how do you prepare for that? How do you pack? pack how, what do you plan to bring with you as you go? You know, that, do you plan to bring a lot of stuff? Do you plan to, to dress... Um, Loosely, you know, unencumbered, you know, what is the smart way to go? You know, that, that ice chest full of cold drinks, you know, it might be handy to, when you get thirsty or, or hot, to, to have that, but it's, it's just not worth the wait. Um, so that, that's typically why long-distance runners, you know, they'll, they'll basically carry very few things with them as they go, because it's just not worth the wait. And as, as we look to Jesus, Jesus is a, is a perfect example of of laying aside hindrances and being streamlined in his laser focus on his mission. There's a lot of examples, but I'm just going to talk about a couple. 
So we first see Jesus eliminating hindrances when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. You know, he, he hasn't eaten, he's been fasting, he's tired, and the devil comes to him and, and offers him, he offers him food, he offers him power. You know, all these things would seem to be good things. Food, power, you know, all these things would be good, but it's, it's not in the timing. There's strings attached to these things. And so Jesus, you know, does away with it. He rejects those, those offers and he moves forward, even though it's, it's more painful. He moves forward because he's, he's focused on what he's been called to do. We see removal of hindrances when Jesus refuses to be beholden to pharisaical laws, such as healing on the Sabbath, hand washing. These things, they might be good, and there might be a good reason for those laws, but they are, at this moment for Jesus, impedances to doing what he has been called to do. And there's one point in which the people want to make him king. They see all the miracles he's doing, and they say, let's make him king, which that seems like it'd be a really good thing, right? Like, Jesus is, supposed, is going to be king, right? But for, for him in that moment, Jesus came, he was focused on the cross, he came here to die, and being king at that time would have been distracting, would have been a hindrance to his mission. And so he slips away um, and avoids that weight. And then there's, there's multiple examples in which Jesus moves away from larger crowds, away from larger cities, places in which it seems like his message would be wildly, widely adopted and his message would be able to, to get to a lot of people. But Jesus instead decides to, to spend time either with his disciples or in a smaller town or just goes off and, and prays. And so he, he's laser-focused on what it is that he's been called to do. And there, there are many things in, in our lives that, that aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves but they can slow us down if we give them too much weight. So how do we know what is a hindrance for us and what is worth hanging on to? This is why it's important to know what our end goal is. If we know what our end goal is, we can ask, is this thing helping me to get there or is it an obstruction? Is this helping me to draw closer to Christ or is it distracting me and um, causing me to lose focus? And if it's distracting you, then it's probably time to let it go. Now, before you decide to eliminate everything in your life and sell all your possessions, quit your job, just become a monk and, you know, just spend your all day every day just in quiet meditation, I just want to keep and let you know that or remind you that the gospel permeates all aspects of your life. We can serve Christ as a witness to him at work. We can worship him as we enjoy his creation. We can give thanks for him to the, the things that he's, been give, that he's given to us. You don't necessarily need to quit your job, sell all your possessions to be laser-focused on Christ. And there isn't a one-size-fits-all for everyone. It's up to each one of us to examine our own hearts and pray for guidance as to what we need to hold on to and what we need to get rid of. And I also want to remind us that that we're all in this race together. So we're not competing. You're not competing against the person sitting next to you. This is a collaborative effort. So the time that we spend serving in the church, it, it may be draining. It may seem like it's slowing you down. But if it's bringing others to Christ, then it's worth the time and energy. For some of you, it might be wise to pare back some of your commitments. Our service at church can be burdensome, and sometimes the right decision is to say no. But for others of you, 
the church needs you to carry more weight. This is, this is a collaborative effort, and we need to, to move forward collectively towards Christ, and we need to effectively distribute the weight and encourage each other to, to move forward towards Christ. The second phrase in the verse is, the sin which so easily entangles us. And sin slows us down because it affects our relationship with God. Sin is what is, is the barrier to, to God in the first place. It's what separated us from him. And even though the ultimate penalty of sin has been, has been paid for, there's still a relational aspect of our sin damages our relationship with God. We, we lose that closeness with God when we have unrepentant sin in our lives. So how do we lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us? We identify it, we confess it, and we pray for help to avoid the sin in the future. Sin, it says it, it so easily entangles us, but it really is easily untangled. All it takes is, is confession, repentance, and moving on. That doesn't mean we necessarily won't get entangled in the future, which means we need to be vigilant in continually assessing our lives and, and seeing what sin is is in our lives that we need to repent of. So how does Jesus' example help us in this, in this case? Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus experienced the same temptation that we do, and he was able to avoid sin. So as we draw closer to Jesus, and as our character becomes more in line with his, we can have confidence that our, that our, uh, our efforts in resisting sin will get easier as we go. As we draw closer to Christ, we can have confidence that, um, that avoiding sin will become easier in the future. And it's, it can be painstakingly slow, but there is progress in our struggle against sin. Okay, so running the race of faith, it takes clarity of direction. It takes removal of hindrances and the sin that so easily entangles us. And third, it takes endurance. Verse 2 says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In a couple chapters earlier, the author of Hebrew writes, For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. We're in this race either until the day we die or until the day that Christ comes back. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I try to approach Christian life as a sprint. You know, New Year's Day comes along, and I set up all these really lofty goals. You know, I'm going to pray for an hour each day. I'm going to memorize a chapter of the Bible each week. You know, things that are, are beyond what I am capable of doing, at, at least at this point in my, in my walk with the Lord. And inevitably, I fail. Uh, usually, it's pretty quickly. And I get frustrated. And oftentimes, it sets me back farther than had I have not made that that goal in the first place. Setting goals, it can be helpful, but we need to set goals that are appropriate to the endurance race that we're in. We need to understand where we're at in the race. We need to understand our own limitations. We, we need to take into account, you know, the power that Christ has in us, but we need to have an accurate understanding of who we are and where we're at. We need to account for, for the difficult terrain that's ahead of us. Rendering a race of endurance, it takes maintenance along the way. Whether you do New Year's resolutions or not, it's important to regularly stop and assess where you're at. And the first question we need to ask ourselves 
am I even facing the right direction? Am I keeping my eyes focused on Jesus or am I pursuing other things? And then secondly, are there ways in which we can move forward more efficiently? You know, are we, do we have hindrances or sin in our lives that's holding us back? Have there been any life changes that maybe need, you need to change your approach? You know, maybe the terrain has changed and you need to, to change the way that you're, you're approaching things. For me personally, my devotional times, they got thrown out of whack in July. You, some of you might know that, that we had twins born in July. And our schedule is, is continually changing. You know, every, every week it seems like they're on a, on a different schedule, constantly changing. And a lot of the things that worked for me before July don't work for me now. And I've had to, had to deal with, and I'm still wrestling with, how do I get that closeness in, that, in my devotional times that I used to have in this new season of my life. And so I, I'm still working through that, but you know, there are things in our life that, that come up that need us to assess how are we doing, what is the best way for us to redirect our, our eyes to Jesus. And endurance races, they're difficult, right? I don't know if any of you have run a marathon, but let me tell you, they're, they're difficult. And in Luke 14, Jesus talks about making sure that we know what we're getting into before we enter the race. He says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends the delegation and asks for terms of peace. And the Christian life, it requires a cost. First of all, there's the cost of time. Every one of you sitting here, you're giving up something, some opportunity cost of something you could be doing. You could be sleeping in, you could be watching the Broncos play the Chiefs right now, or, or whatever it is. You could be doing something else with your time. And even beyond Sunday mornings, those of you who are part of small groups, you are giving up your Tuesday nights to, to join with us in fellowship and studying God's Word. And just the, the time that we spend in, in prayer and reading God's Word on our own, it takes time. Time that we could be spent doing other things. There's a cost of time. There's a cost of money. You know, we, we talk about, about giving. Um, the money that we give to Mission Church, we could be using it on other things. The, our tithes and offerings are our cost of, of our race of faith and what we've been called to do. And there's also a cost of potential persecution. One of the themes of the book of Hebrews is, is holding fast to Jesus in the midst of persecution. And even if you're not currently experiencing persecution, it's something that needs to be accounted for when you decide whether or not you want to enter this race. Jesus told us to expect persecution when he says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So persecution is a natural result of following Jesus. And we're being asked in our passage to follow the example of Christ, who, it says, endured the cross. And the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross, both the physical pain as well as the emotional and spiritual pain, that's, that's as bad as suffering and persecution can get. So Jesus is not calling us to, to go through something that he himself was not willing to go through. He is our example in that, in, in going through persecution and suffering. So there's a cost for sure, but that needs to be weighed against the reward of running the race. We've already talked about the, the reward of the finish line, of being fully reunited with Christ in the end, no longer having to worry about the sin that so easily entangles us, and being freely and completely reunited with Christ. But there's, there's a reward in the race itself. The Christian life, it involves progressively becoming more like Christ and enjoying a, a deeper relationship with him. And I want you to just think about how has your life changed since you've become a Christian? How has God changed your heart? How has he drawn you closer to him throughout this, this race that you've been running, this, this process of sanctification? And the times that, that you've been close to him versus the times that you've, you've been distant. In which, in which time and which period have you been most joyful? You can do the math yourself, but for me, the cost of following Jesus is worth it every time. I don't, I don't always see it in the moment, but as I look back, I've never regretted the time, the money, or the risk of persecution of following Jesus. James 1, 2-4 says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let that endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So the very trials that we experience help produce endurance in us. So to summarize, running the race of faith, it takes clarity of direction, it takes removal of hindrances and the sin that so easily entangles us, and it takes endurance. And one last thing before I close. The end of verse 1, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. None of us can, can say that we've run a perfect race so far. We've all spent time either standing still or wandering off in other directions. We've carried around unnecessary hindrances and have spent too much time being stuck in sin that's, that's held us back. We can't change what's happened up to this point. But right now, regardless of what lies behind, we have a race that is set before us. Let's learn from our mistakes, and let's rejoice at the progress that we've made so far. But let's not dwell either in regret of what mistakes we've made in the past or get comfortable with how far we've gotten so far. Let's focus on the path in front of us, and let's draw closer to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this passage. Um, we thank you for your word uh, that continually reminds us to, to focus uh, our, our eyes on you. Uh, we thank you for, for the example that, that you've given us, um, Christ coming to earth, living the perfect life. We thank you for what he did on our behalf and just the, the opportunity and the ability to, to draw near to you. And so we just pray that we would be uh, intentional, that we would be focused on you, and that we would um,
continue to, to run this race well and honoring to you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.